Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Namihinui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. I hope you're all well and safe in your bubble as we begin week two of our COVID 19 lockdown. If you are out there bringing an essential service to us, a very big thank you. Tonight on the show, we're getting in the general groove and going viral. Later on, just to remind us that we humans are not the only living things locked in life-and-death battles with viruses, I am mining the Our Changing World archives for a story about a rare plant and a virus hunter. But first, we are going to have a bit of a virus 101 chat with expert Kurt Krauser from the University of Otago, focusing, of course, on coronaviruses. There's big debates about whether a virus is actually alive or whether it's inanimate, but essentially it's just a piece of either DNA or RNA that has this protein wrap. Sometimes there are some other loose proteins that are complexed with the nucleic acids, and viruses vary in terms of what kind of nucleic acid they have, DNA or RNA, and they also vary whether or not they have that lipid envelope. They vary greatly in size and the amount of DNA or RNA also. How many different kinds of viruses are there? Oh, goodness. I couldn't give you an absolute number, but there are hundreds of viruses, and there are you know, viruses that are human trophic, and there are viruses that tend to infect animals, and there are viruses that in- infect plants. I attended an infectious diseases meeting in the U.S. where someone had developed a chip that would detect all viruses. And then he analyzed uh, what people were exposed to. And it turned out that we eat plant viruses constantly as humans, and they don't affect us. So we, we live in this world where there's just tons and tons of viruses. I remember reading something recently about doing surveys of seawater, and it turns out that seawater's just chock-a-block full of viruses. It is. It's brimming. And now there's about 100 viruses that are pathogenic to humans. So from your description of viruses, it sounds like viruses come in different types. So you, you get different families of viruses, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Usually the way they're classified is based on their nucleic acid composition. So there's the double-stranded DNA family, there's the single-stranded DNA family, double and single-stranded RNA families. So lots of technical details like that. And also the number and type of proteins that make up the shell that contains the nucleic acid. So they're all designed to survive very well in nature, and they can float freely. And then when they encounter a mucosal surface, like um, your throat or your eye or the inside of your nose, then they can be taken up, or at least that would be airborne viruses. Other viruses can be taken up through the bloodstream. But they're designed to unpack and then start replicating. And the way they wreak havoc is they enter a cell, and they take over our own cell's machinery and sort of subverts our biochemical machines and start 
using those machines to make their own viral particles. Then they'll make a ton of viral particles, which will swell the cell up and then burst the cell and then go on and cause other infections. Charming. So they're basically hijacking our cells. They are absolutely hijacking our cells, and they do all kinds of uh, fascinating uh, tricks. Sometimes they will secrete fake human proteins, and they will convince our human cells to destroy their own proteins, which are actually protective. They're insidious, and they do lots and lots of amazing things. So can you tell me a little bit about coronaviruses, the group to which COVID-19 belongs? So coronavirus is an RNA virus, and it doesn't have a particularly big genome, but it does have a lipid envelope. And this lipid envelope is important for maintaining its integrity, and it also is important for being able to break it down with sanitizers and soaps. Am I right in thinking that coronaviruses are amongst the viruses implicated in the common cold? Yeah, well, right. There are several different serotypes of coronavirus, and there were two serotypes that are real famous because one caused SARS and one caused MERS. But there are other coronaviruses, two other common serotypes that cause something really just like the common cold. So the common cold is classically caused by the rhinovirus, but a lot of different viruses can give you common cold type, runny nose, fever, stuffiness, headache, that kind of thing. And coronavirus was one of those. So I think I read there's about seven coronaviruses that affect us. As you say, those two bad ones plus the new one and then some milder ones. Yes, that's exactly right. And their weak point for all of those is this lipid layer, that, that envelope that you talked about. That's a weak point. These proteins are a weak point, And the spike protein, or the, the, the crown on the coronavirus, when you look at transmission EM, electron micrographs, you can see that crown. Those seem to be a good point for, for vaccine design. What does that spike protein do? When viruses cause infection, they have a lipid coat, right? But the spike protein allows it to bind to our proteins in order to be taken up and then uncoat and cause infection. And really the war that goes on between us and bacteria and us and viruses is a protein-protein war because we have our proteins and they have their proteins and their proteins try to bind to our proteins. They try to break our proteins down. They try to hijack our proteins. So we're in this protein-protein battle on a molecular level, and the spike protein binds to a receptor on the surface of human cells and facilitates the uptake of the coronavirus during the infection process. So something like coronavirus, which was clearly infecting an animal possibly, probably a bat we don't know for sure yet. What suddenly makes it able to jump species? So, you know, why was it not a problem for people until the end of last year? And then what happened to make it a problem for us? Yeah, the jury is out about this particular coronavirus and what has happened. A lot of work is going on. But essentially, there are viruses that can exist in people and animals. And sometimes get transferred back and forth. And there's an important concept that's emerging in medicine called One Health that points to the fact that our environment and what's going on with animals and what's going on with us are all interconnected. Influenza is a, is a big example because the same flu that we get is passed to birds and it's also passed to livestock and it goes around and around. Now, 
most of the time, the animal viruses stay in the animals and the human viruses stay in the humans, but sometimes mutations occur which allow greater transmission to take place. And there's usually a, a, a couple of events. One of them is a juxtaposition of uh, humans and animals so that the viral transmission can take place. Like, for example, this open-air food market in Wuhan. I don't know, but you, you've probably heard it the same that I've heard, that, that, that bats were available for consumption. Mm. If that's, in fact, true, that would put humans in proximity with an animal that has a lot of, of viruses. Another event which uh, is likely to have occurred is a mutation in one of these viruses which made it able to infect humans. And then if you have a combination of mutations that make it more pathogenic and make it spread faster, then you can get uh, something like what we've seen happen. It can happen. And it's happened several times in history, but we're living through a pandemic now that's, that's quite remarkable. We hear about mutations in relation to the annual flu and, you know, that mutates and we, we're always trying to stay one step ahead of it. So is what changes the protein on the outside? Is, does that become better at locking into our cells or something? Generally what happens is these viruses will mutate all the time. And most of the mutations make them less effective or less lethal. So those then die out. But some mutations make them more infectious and more capable of spreading, and then those get selected for. So there's this constant background of mutations that are happening. As you pointed out, the mutations in the nucleic acid change the proteins. They change the proteins in the surface, and they can change the internal proteins. But the nucleic acids are the, the code, if you will, that gets uh, translated into the protein sequence. What do you think we might be able to do in terms of developing a treatment for COVID-19, something that would kill it? <laughs> the vaccine is, of course, a really big hope, particularly vaccines directed against the spike protein. Uh, and those are all in development. Gosh, there's dozens and dozens of vaccines that are in development now. And there's a vaccine uh, that was designed by Moderna in the U.S. that's gone into phase one trial. So humans have already started to receive it. And there'll be others during the next 12 months. Many different vaccines will go into trial. And if we find a vaccine that's effective, that will be our very best way of controlling this, this virus. The other thing is there are um, many, many compounds being tested that are called DAAVs, direct acting antivirals. And these are compounds that bind to the proteins that are found in any virus, but in this case the coronavirus, and shut down their proteins and prevent them from hijacking our cell. So there's a whole bunch of drugs that are being developed that are in early stages. And one of the more interesting things from my point of view is there are a handful of drugs that are already out there, that have already been approved for other reasons or in advanced uh, preclinical development that appear to have activity against coronavirus. And those are being studied now. If it turns out that they have um, a good effect against the coronavirus, we might have drugs that we can use to treat infection now while a vaccine is developed. What are some of those drugs, Kurt? All right, so one drug that's being tried is lopinavir ritonavir, which is also known as Kaletra, and it's an HIV drug. And that's been used in small clinical trials in, in China and is still being looked at. 
Another one is called chloroquine, which is a drug for malaria. I was going to say that's um, not even a viral drug. Right. But it, in the test tube, it inhibits coronavirus replication. Three very interesting drugs are remdesivir, galadesivir, and favipiravir. Uh, the ivir is usually added at the end of the drug name to tell you it's an antiviral. And those three drugs inhibit the enzyme and the virus that allows its nucleic acid to be replicated, and they're absolutely essential for viral replication. These three drugs appear to have activity against uh, the coronavirus, and in a couple of cases, they're actually in phase three trials now, and results of these trials will be starting to come out uh, quite soon. And some of the early data on these trials looks very promising, although you really have to wait to see the the results of these trials in order to know the best thing to do. Thanks, Kurt. And Kurt Krausler is at the University of Otago. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou ao whānui. Now, it's time to dive into our changing world's enormous back catalogue of stories. I typed the word virus into the show's search tab and found a wide variety of stories, some of which I'll play in the coming weeks. My first archival pick is from 2016 and involved a trip out to Tairoa Head at the tip of the Otago Peninsula. But we were not in search of albatrosses. We were looking for a rare coastal cress. We, being virus hunter Paul Guy from the University of Otago, and Graham Lowe, who back then was a rare plant ranger for the Department of Conservation. The pidiums seem to catch everything. We always knew about the cabbage white butterflies. It's in the cabbage family, and there goes one right now. OK, so let's wind back. Lepidium, what are we looking for? Lepidium, it's a native cress. It's got this stupid English name, Cook's scurvy grass. Now, why is that a stupid name? It's not a grass. <laughs> <laughs> And it didn't give Cook scurvy. <laughs> Did it stop him getting scurvy? He learned from the Dutch that if you ate plants from the cabbage family, you wouldn't get scurvy if you gave it to your crew. And Banks told him this belongs to the cabbage family, so they collected a dinghy load of it somewhere. And it worked. And it worked, Now, we yes. don't have dinghy loads of it around here, but we do have, by all accounts, quite a good population. So these are the plants that Paul is standing next to. There's one at his feet. Can yep. you describe it for me? Well, what's really prominent at the moment is little rosettes of dusty green leaves. They've got a little bit of teeth on them. The way that I sometimes have to help identify them is something I learnt from Hugh Wilson, is you taste it, and it tastes like cabbage. It tastes like cress, it tastes like mustard. Peppery cress. Peppery cress, yeah. yes. It looks a bit like the sweet alyssum that I grow in my garden at home to attract bees. Yeah, so it's, it's in the same family, alyssums, uh, another... Brassica, masquerading as a sort of decorative plant. What kind of lepidium is it? This is lepidium crassum, only grows in Otago, and one of the extraordinary things is it survived on the mainland. In fact, it's doing better on the mainland at several colonies than the two island colonies that we have. Now, this is a pretty unique spot for it here, so why is it doing so well here? The red-billed gulls... I've set up a large colony here. It's probably the second largest colony of red-billed gulls in New Zealand now, after the decline in the Kaikoura colony, which is still the biggest. And they've progressively been moving around the headland, and they just completely denude the place, and as you can see, it's all white with guano. 
That's how intense the gull nesting was here. There were several thousand nests right here this last summer and the summer before. It's so good that the mallow, the exotic mallow, grows up and it means that they can't nest in places up the hill there where they were a few years ago. But it kills every other plant. As you can see, you're standing on dead plants all around you here. There's um, Festuca arundinacea. Everything dies back, but the lepidium's very good at coping with high salinities, high chemical content, and it's good at coping with a lot of trampling and a lot of being used for nest material. So even though it looks quite soft, it is very, very hardy. It's sort of one of the plant kingdom's thrill seekers, I think, where Graham's shown me it doesn't like competition, but if things are really tough, it really likes to get going. He showed me one site where green water crashes across it from the, the open ocean, but Lepidium hangs on where other things can't. Are they perennials? Is this plant that we're looking at here, is that going to stick around for a few years? Yeah, they, they last for quite a few years. Graham's got some good... Uh, data from the Aramoana Mole where he's followed mm. them for, for many years. Yeah, so the plants will be over 10 years old but they do die quite easily and that's where Paul comes in and helping me with the various things that's causing them to die. So they're tough but sensitive wee things. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're infected by three different viruses that have come in since sort of the European invasion of, of New Zealand and um, yeah, we're just trying to see how important they are. There's some Interesting clues, the, the ones on Aramoana don't seem to get naturally infected, which is a good thing, but I've tested some seedlings that Graham provided back in the glasshouse for one of these three viruses and it kills them stone dead in, in three months, so it's potentially quite serious. Tell me a bit more about these viruses. They probably came in with our introduced brassicas, one called cauliflower mosaic, another one called turnip mosaic, another one called turnip yellows which gives you a clue where they originally came from uh, but they also came with uh, aphid vectors the aphids act like flying hypodermic syringes and inject them into all sorts of brassicas uh, and unfortunately including these uh, rarities so we're looking at ways of maybe mitigating the risk. So when did you begin to suspect that viruses might be a problem in your lepidiums Graham? When uh, Gary Houliston and Peter Heenan came down and Peter Heenan ran around one of my colleagues saying this one's sick, pulled it out, that one's sick, pulled it out and he got rid of half the population of the really rare Lepidium juvencum at Long Beach Cave. I was appalled but he said now if you leave these alive the um, aphids will get around and then I met Paul and he told me a bit more about this stuff but what a headache for a person that's used to killing big things. Yeah, well, so what we hope we might be able to do is, is see if there's a pattern in different populations. And the sort of first suspicion is that maybe some of the brassica weeds are acting as reservoirs and it's sort of spilling across into the lepidiums. Uh, so we've you know, made a note of what species are around each population of lepidium to see if there's a, a sort of correlation with, with which ones are infected and which ones aren't. So be interested to see today if these ones are infected or not. They certainly look... Some of them look unhealthy, uh, but some of the prime suspects are not here. But just over there, one that Graham found last visit was this forage brassica, which would be a prime suspect as a, a reservoir. For both aphids and for virus. Yeah, definitely. So to determine whether these have got a virus, is that something you need to take back to the lab and do? Yeah, I've got some 
quick tests I can do in the, in the lab. Same sort of technology we use for medical tests. We've got similar tests for plant viruses and also some work in the glasshouse. We can grind them up and see if there's other viruses there that might transmit to, to test plants. But I'm sort of half hoping if we just do basically good uh, plant husbandry there, if we get rid of some of these reservoir weeds, we might be able to uh, reduce the, the problem. The other problem, of course, is that you know, back from where these live, there's lots of paddocks of forage brassicas and other weeds that are potentially uh, part of the problem too. So it may not be as simple as, as we think, but we've got to start and somewhere. And a whole city full of gardeners. Yeah. I'm really pleased that Landcare and the University have taken an interest in this because all the lip native lepidiums are in the threatened categories. There's none of them that are secure, one of them that's ex extinct. And we've got some really interesting lepidiums, both here on the coast and also the ones inland, the Lepidium cisimbrioides. Now tell me a bit more about viruses and our native plants, or our introduced plants for that matter. Well, unfortunately there's more and more every year. The biosecurity tries to keep them out, but uh, unfortunately people sort of help introduce them. Um, yeah, and, and part of the, as well as being problems in, in crops and ornamental species, they've also been invading our native flora. Uh, we've done some work over the years on various species. Native grasses, um, one of the larger families in our native flora, have been ex unfortunately um, invaded by <coughs> viruses that came in, probably with introduced grasses and cereals. Uh, again, transmitted by aphids. It seems to be a very efficient way of introducing uh, new diseases into to native populations. So, yeah, quite a, a problem for agriculture, uh, but also less studied. And one of the things we're trying to concentrate on and a few other small groups around the country is what are their effects likely to be and, and how much have they invaded our, our native species. And Lepidium, I guess, is a, a good case in point. Do you know what all the viruses are that we have, or do you keep finding new ones? Uh, in New Zealand we keep finding new ones. Uh, in the cresses we've found three so far, but um, interesting thing that we did last summer, Graham collected some cresses and I looked at the various insects that were associated and we found um, that, you know, that dreadful flowery aphid that you find on your cabbages and cauliflowers, that was one of the ones that he found on some cresses just over the hill from here but I also found when I tapped them out and looked under the microscope some thrips and thrips are prime suspect there's a whole suite of viruses that thrips transmit so we need to sort of widen the, the net I think and look for some of these thrip transmitted viruses as well. So it's interesting talking about viruses and plants because there's so much on the news at the moment with Zika virus and mosquitoes but this whole thing of viruses and plants is just yeah, well, that was the news to me. I didn't know that plants could get viruses. Yeah, well, they've got their own suite. There's about a thousand well-characterised plant viruses to date and many more to come, I suspect. With newer molecular techniques, we're finding more and more and it's getting easier to, to detect them en masse. But, yeah, they're just part of life too. I mean, everyone they have a very negative connotation and certainly getting into lepidium is not a good thing, but uh, they're also part of the biome as well. It's just a harder sell to convince people that uh, viruses are a natural part of life. Are they like flu and rapidly evolving? They seem to have evolved with the plant hosts and they, they've 
probably been around for tens of millions, if not more, years, and they're diversifying with, with their hosts rather than jumping to new hosts all the time. And they seem to respect our idea of plant taxonomy, that a bit like these lepidium viruses, the ones that are prime suspects are viruses that affect other brassicas in the same family. They don't really jump around. I guess the news and media like to sensationalise the few that are changing rapidly because it scares people and, and sells copy, I guess, for radio and TV. But most of them are just sort of chugging along most of the time, I suspect. Talking about public perception and media, we were talking about genetic engineering on the way out here and you were bemoaning no genetic engineering and I was oh, saying definitely. it's great that we have no genetic engineering. <laughs> you try to put me out of the car halfway there. <laughs> I think it's potentially a very useful tool. It's been in use now for over 20 years. It's not you know, a silver bullet, but particularly in my area, there are many species that don't have good resistance genes, natural resistance genes to uh, plant viruses, but we can make resistance genes in the lab, and people have, and deployed them successfully and, and safely. It saved the uh, pawpaw or papaya industry in, in Hawaii. There's a, a virus called... Uh, papaya ring spot virus which wiped out the industry and uh, fortunately a plant virologist grew up on a papaya farm and he said I, I know how I can help and they created this transgene a sort of dud copy of the virus gene that they inserted into to pawpaw or papaya and it makes them resistant and it's held up for over 20 years now and it's sold even in farmers markets in Hawaii and other parts of the world didn't like the idea for a long time, but even Japan and Europe now are importing and eating these uh, transgenic papayas. And the good thing is that doing that, it's also reduced the need for insecticides because they had to spray constantly to kill the aphids that was, was spreading the virus. So they've reduced the amount of insecticide they've needed. Uh, so it's helped in that regard too. Thanks, Paul. That was plant virus expert Paul Guy from the Botany Department at the University of Otago, and we also heard from Doc Ranger, Graham Lowe. If you'd like to listen to Kurt's Virus 101 story again, or find Graham and Paul in the archives, just head to the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Like many folk at RNZ and all around the country, I am working at home. Wherever you are, I hope you're warm and safe in your bubble with well-washed hands. If you have questions or comments, please email me at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz and you'll also find me on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. It's good night from me, Alison Balance. Nā mihi. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.